Le feu tué. Firepower kills. General Philippe Pétain, French Second Army, Verdun, 1916. Welcome to the Battle of Verdun podcast, episode 5, Firepower Kills. I just want to say a quick thank you to everyone who has been listening and who's left reviews. Um, I really appreciate the time you've taken and your kind words are truly um, very humbling. Thank you very much. And as always, uh, the podcast is available through the website, battleofverdunpodcast.com, and through iTunes, Stitcher, and we also have a Facebook page. All right. When we left off the last time, General Pétain had taken over on the French side, and as a result, French defense at Verdun stiffened. The German drive on Verdun was stalled just a week after it started. Furthermore, French artillery on Les Mortes-Hommes, on the left bank of the Meuse, was devastating German troop movements on the right bank, causing the Germans to decide that now the left bank had to be attacked before the right bank could be fully secured. Back on the right bank, on March 4th, to the northwest of Fort Douaumont, the Germans finally took the chunks of masonry and rock dust that used to be Douaumont Village. French 33rd Infantry was defeated and pushed out with tremendous losses. One battalion of the regiment was reduced to 19 men. At Dumont Village, the Germans took a few prisoners, among them being a young and badly wounded captain named Charles de Gaulle. The French commander in the area immediately launched a counterattack because the Offensive Autron's policy dictated that this was how it was done. But General Pétain personally ordered all further attacks there to cease, effective immediately. The early spring thaw that had so helped out the French ended with a blizzard that began the next day on March 5th. Despite the crappy weather conditions, the Germans opened their left bank attack with the pounding of Hills 304, Les Mordom and Côte de Loire, otherwise known as Goose Hill, by their artillery. The hurricane of fire that had destroyed the Bois de Car on February 21st now came down on these three hills and on the trench lines two miles ahead. French were as ready as time had allowed them. Four full infantry divisions, probably somewhere in the range of 60,000 men, had been rushed up into the left bank as the Germans pushed on the other side of the River Meuse. Another division was in reserve just behind the line, ready to close any breach that might open up. Further behind the line, behind the Bois-Boru Ridge, just to the northwest of Verdun itself, French heavy artillery continuously pounded the Germans back. Crown Prince later admitted 
French artillery played havoc with the preparations for the attack on Mordome. Land on the left bank of the Verdun salient was hilly, but with less of the steep ravines found on the right bank. There was more open ground between the hills. Dominating the area was the Côte de Loire Ridge, Goose Hill Ridge, the western end of which was Le Mort-Homme. Le Mort-Homme itself, that's English for a dead man's hill, uh, was a gently rolling hill that offered really good field of fire uh, looking north, which was right where the Germans were. Le Mort-Homme got its name from some fuzzy long-ago story of a traveler who had apparently perished during a winter storm in the area, and thus the hill was always from there on called Le Mort-Homme. To the west of Le Mort-Homme lay Hill 304, which also offered excellent views and fields of fire. With the constant shelling, the woods on both sides of the trench line were very quickly being torn down and thinned out. This made it harder for the Germans to move their guns and men into position as the French could now literally see them amongst the shattered and broken trees. The roar of the artillery never stopped. Poilu's moving up La Route would later say it sounded like you were marching towards some huge forge, one that never ceased day or night. And now, the carnage that the Battle of Verdun would be known for got really going. On March 6th, the Crown Prince's new infantry corps, the 6th, launched its attack on the left bank between the villages of Betancourt and Forge. General von Sveil's men across the River Meuse assisted by crossing the river and working to get behind the French lines on the left bank. French guns now opened up in a murderous counter-battery fire. So many attacks on both sides would be determined by the power of the artillery. Many of the infantrymen on both sides would attest to a feeling of helplessness and powerlessness during the fighting at Verdun, of being completely powerless against the might of the shells thrown at them. In the sector between Forge and the Meuse itself, the French 67th Infantry Division found itself under attack from two directions. From their front and from their right flank, the Germans were crossing the river itself. Making things worse, the morale of the 67th was already crumbling from having been in the front line without relief for too long. General Pétain's Noria system was still coming online. And now adding a, another factor was that half the French shells landing in the muddy ground by the riverbank weren't exploding. They were landing in the mud as duds. So French 67th Infantry Division broke under the strain and the Germans broke through them. By the night of the 6th, the Germans had captured the villages of Forge and Ranville and the land between them along the Meuse, as well as the eastern end of Côte de Loire. The Germans now moved on the Bois de Corbeau, the only patch of woods between German trenches and Le Mort-Homme itself. With Côte de Loire and the Bois de Corbeau in their hands, the Germans would be able to attack Le Mort-Homme from the flank and not have to assault it frontally, like they were doing right now between Betancourt and Forge. 
The remains of one of the French 67th Division's regiments now held the Bois de Corbeau. Having seen over a third of its men surrender, and with the unit commander facing a likely court-martial for having a third of its men surrender, the commander and his men put up a defiant defense. Artillery poured into this patch of woods now, with the now familiar scenes of trees and body parts flying through the air amidst the fog of smoke and the bright red-orange of shell bursts. The German infantry, already nerve-wracked by the devastating French artillery, now went into the woods. Half day's brutal fight, and the Bois de Corbeau was wrenched from its French defenders on March 7th. Between Betancourt and Forge, directly north of Les Mortons, German attacks went nowhere. In fact, the Germans barely got out of their trenches alive. The French were just waiting for a frontal assault on the hill, and French gunners soaked German positions with a hailstorm of heavy artillery, giving their enemy the exact same bombardment they'd received. This was now Bétain's battle. The attack on the left bank had been anticipated for days, and now it was here. The ferocious manner of French artillery was showing the Germans, think you're all Billy Badass with that artillery? Guess what? We can do it too. A new watchword was coming into the French army now. It wasn't per se or grignotage anymore. Now it was denied, holding. This new concept of denied showed something of the mindset of the French military in the early spring of 1916. The heady days of per se had given way to the resolute, trying to work like attitude of grignotage. Now even that was fading into a grim and downcast determination to hold. Denied. Just hold on. We've got to hold on. We've got to hold. For French military leadership, Denied was a defensive term that to them would be as aggressive as possible. So holding would mean holding at all costs with the express command that any lost parcel of ground would be immediately retaken. So instead of attacking to excess, it would now be defending to excess. For the German Frontschweine, the front pigs, as the infantry like to call themselves, in the half trenches and shell holes across no man's land, it was much the same, only with more offense in mind. There was no question of turning back, of giving up when so many of your friends and fellow soldiers lay dead around you, underneath you, and on top of you. Most German divisions would not be relieved until they were effectively wiped out. Those units that remained at half strength would be fed an IV line of replacements that came from supply depots some 30 kilometers behind the front line. And this is why the Battle of Verdun wouldn't have the same cultural effect on Germany that would have on France. Less Germans fought at Verdun, with less survivors of the battle. With Bétain's Noria system, fully two-thirds of the French army would pass through the Verdun meat grinder, branding survivors forever with what they saw and lived through there. General Bétain didn't want wasteful counterattacks for the point of keeping with the 
offensive à outrance doctrine. But he knew that holding the left bank with Le Mortom and Hill 304 were absolutely vital to the French defense of Verdun. So he loosened his grip on his commanders and allowed for local operations to lash back at the Germans where needed. The Bois de Corbeau, the shattered wood at the northeastern base of Le Mortom, was just that kind of place. Having been unable to hold the wood, the order now went out that the Poilus were to retake it immediately. In steps the French 92nd Regiment d'Infanterie and its dashing commander, Lieutenant Colonel Camille Joseph Léon Macaire. And this is something like straight out of Pickett's charge at Gettysburg, what, what's about to happen. In the early morning of March 8th, Macaire put on a startlingly clean Horizon Blue uniform and famously lacking water, washed his upturned mustaches in Pinard, French army-issued wine. He then assembled the men of his three battalions in parade ground formation. Between his assembly point and the Bois de Corbeau lay several hundred meters of open ground. Lieutenant Colonel Macaire lit a cigar and at the front of his men led them out into the open as soon as the French artillery stopped blasting the wood and the exhausted, filthy Germans in it. 92nd advanced. The Germans opened up with machine guns and mortars. Bloody gaps were torn open in Macaire's formation, but they kept coming. As they neared the shell-torn trees, the Poilus fixed bayonets and poured into the wood in a frenzy. In the bloody fight that followed, the defending Germans, worn down by the previous day's fighting, broke and ran. Macaire had the Bois de Corbeau back in French army hands by mid-morning through sheer gui and not a few casualties. And the front line bumped back a few hundred meters to the advantage of the French. I sometimes think, was Macaire just some kind of nut? I, I used to think so. But I found a photo of him on the web, and yes, I see a picture and, and I make a story out of it. Suddenly, I think Lieutenant Colonel Macaire, as someone just as resolutely brave as Lieutenant Colonel Emile Drian from the Bois des Corps, or Sergeant Kunze from Fort Douaumont, just had a different angle on how to live that bravery out. He wasn't a nut. He just believed in what he was doing. His victory was short-lived. The Germans came back and attacked both the Bois de Corbeau and the Bois de Comier. Not on the map on the website, but near Comier village. With a vengeance. The next two days, attack and counterattack raged over these two broken and body-filled patches of woods as men shot stabbed and clubbed each other to death while shells screamed in and blew them apart. On March 10th, Lieutenant Colonel Macaire was killed and what was left of his 92nd Infantry pulled back pretty demoralized. Germans retook the Bois de Corbeau but lost so many men doing so they couldn't advance any further that day. The remains of Macaire's 92nd Infantry organized itself on the crest of Les Mortes Hommes just in time to get pounded by German artillery and face attacks 
and more attacks up the hill by units from six German divisions. The Germans pounded the top of the hill and the reverse slope, hoping to destroy the defenders and stop any reinforcements. French guns on Hill 304 poured monstrous cannonades into the attacking Germans, trapping them where they were. It was impossible to fight the artillery. At some point, you just had to find a shell hole, jump in amongst the body parts, the broken wire, and feces with eyes wide open and nerves straining, and make yourself small, so small, as small as possible, while muttering, Mon Dieu, Mon Dieu, Mon Dieu, over and over. Or perhaps, Vater Unser in Himmel, Geheilisch wird dein Name, dein Reich komm, dein Wille geschehe. Until March 15th, the Germans kept sending men up the slopes of Le Mort Homme, now re-earning its name in spades with the thickening carpet of dead covering it. Poilus of the 92nd Infantry held off every attack, at times with bayonets. The Germans didn't gain an inch of ground. Both sides continued pounding each other with artillery. Battlefield began to turn into an unrecognizable wasteland, a nightmare world of craters and corpses. Le Morton became a smoking volcano, permanently fogged by the smoke of shells. The Germans kept up the pressure on the right bank of the Verdun salient, too. Using a combination of artillery shells and gas shells, the Germans launched new attacks aimed at the stubborn Fort Vaux and the village of Vaux itself. Imagine that now. Now you're fighting in a chemical environment, as if that's not, you know, what you're in is, isn't bad enough already. But now you're fighting with a primitive protective mask that probably made all motions twice as hard. Has anybody out there ever worn a protective mask? I can tell you, they, they really stink. Although they, they do work, it really stinks wearing them. Franschweiner ground their line forward to Vaux Village, where a new death match with the Poilus began. With the artillery, the confusion, and the frequently catastrophic casualties, many combat actions took place between isolated units of Germans and Frenchmen who were cut off, lost, or no longer had any effective idea as to what was happening outside their immediate sector. The battlefield at Verdun was becoming its own world, a doorway to hell itself opened on the banks of the River Meuse. The battle for Vaux village raged on, with the ruins trading sides some 13 times until the end of March. At that point, the Germans finally took the now useless village. Attacks on Fort Vaux failed with catastrophic losses for the Germans. Back on the left bank, the Germans now saw they had a new problem. In order to secure the right bank, they had to take Le Mort Homme on the left bank. In order to take Le Mort Homme, they now needed to take Hill 304 right next to Le Mort Homme. So on March 20th, the never-ending artillery barrage roared up as the Germans now attacked the French at Hill 304 itself and the rest of the line between Malancourt and the Bois d'Avalcourt at the western edge of the Verdun salient. And here we have it. The battle 
had its own momentum now, operating on its own hellish logic. Battle of Verdun now encompassed the entire salient. Between Malancourt and the Bois d'Avalcourt, disaster came for the French again. The German 11th Bavarian Division overran the defending French 29th Division. They overran them with hardly a fight, bagging 2,800 prisoners while they were at it and tearing the front line open. When the Bavarians tried to break out of the Bois d'Avalcourt, French artillery and machine guns mowed them down. Rain fell, making the battlefield a mud pit, and the Bavarians kept coming. They left 2,400 men in the mud that day, but had to go back to their starting lines. On Hill 304 and to the west of it, things went on like this for another week. The morale of the German 5th Army was falling. Its men were worn out. Desertions were on the rise, as well as the numbers of those soldiers being taken prisoner by the French. Apparently, some Germans found that three hots in a cot, even in a French prison camp, was preferable to being on the Verdun battlefield. Against this degrading morale, the Poilus pushed new attacks and even retook part of the Bois d'Avalcourt. But in the back and forth, the Germans began grinding forward again, meters at a time. The ruins of Malancourt fell to the Germans on March 31st, and the rubble of Halcourt fell five days later. At Betancourt, the Poilus held out in the cellars until April 8th. The front line on the left bank was now at Hill 304, and they mort on themselves. Finally. It had taken the Germans a month just to get to the hills. Now they still had to actually take the hills. Von Falkenhayn's plan to bleed the French white wasn't really working out. By the end of March, French casualties were at 89,000. But German losses were at 81,000. This wasn't the lopsided slaughter it was supposed to have been. But the Germans went at it again. On April 9th, in what was to become nine days of rain, the Crown Prince launched attacks on both banks of the salient. But it was what they should have done seven weeks ago. Now the French were ready, and waiting, and with guns blazing. German troops launched themselves up the slopes of Hill 304 and Le Mort Arm to no effect. French artillery tore them apart. Any infantry that made it through the firestorm still had to face the surviving Poilus in the shell holes up ahead. The Germans made a few dents in the French line on the left bank, but that was it. The Poilus opposing them fought back so viciously that the Germans just couldn't move forward. General Pétain, after hearing of the battles on the hills and how his men had held the line, issued an order of the day that ended with his famous and resounding phrase, Courage, on les aura, we'll get them. In the rain and mud, the struggle for Les Mortes Hommes and Hill 304 continued. On Les Mortes Hommes, no one was sure who really held the hill, as shells pounded the crest and slopes continuously. The remains of units, a platoon here, a machine gun section there, fought lonely and isolated battles that were never recorded. French held Hill 304. Here the Germans 
didn't even attack with infantry. They simply poured artillery ceaselessly on it to keep the French down. During the Battle of Verdun, with its emphasis on artillery, it wasn't uncommon for the troops of one side to never once see their enemy, even while their units were decimated. French Captain Augustin Cochin held the top of Le Mort-Homme for four days following the failed German attacks on the 9th. In his memoirs, published posthumously, he was killed on the Somme later that year, and as quoted in Alistair Horne's The Price of Glory, he and his men had just spent 96 hours, the last two days soaked in icy mud, under terrible bombardment, without any shelter other than the narrowness of the trench, which even seemed to be too wide. Not a hole, not a dugout, nothing, nothing. The Bosch did not attack, naturally. It would have been too stupid. It was much more convenient to carry out a fine firing exercise on our backs. Result? I arrived there with 175 men. I returned with 34, several half-mad. The appetite of the ogre is insatiable. My poor Befans, who were half-mad, their round eyes not replying anymore when I spoke to them. With April and the rains, the weather was obviously giving way to spring. Temperatures were getting warmer, and that meant that the bodies and pieces of bodies and the guts hanging from broken tree limbs were beginning to rot. The battlefield was becoming an open cemetery, one where the dead were constantly buried and then dug up and then torn up by the constant shelling. The air was rife with chemicals, smoke, and the stench of putrefaction. The rest of April, the shelling continued on the hills. Germans kept trying, but just couldn't make it up those muddy slopes. So the crown prince and his top generals came up with a new plan. Well, not really. It was the same plan as before, but with more concentrated artillery. Hill 304 would be first, then Le Mortem. On May 3rd, the Germans opened up with 500 guns on Hill 304. For two days, concentrated barrage continued. The violence was unspeakable. The French couldn't get any supplies or men through the rain of shells. Poilus stuck on the hill were steadily wiped out. One battalion, only three crazed men would walk back down that hill. On May 5th, the Germans ended the bombardment and sent their infantry up the churned up hill. Despite the two-day barrage, it still took another three days of fighting in the rising late spring heat before the Germans breached Beton's line of resistance and took Hill 304. But they did it. They knocked the French off. By May 8th, some 10,000 Frenchmen had died for Hill 304 alone. I can't even wrap my mind around that number. One of the first things the conquering German troops asked for was a double ration of tobacco to mask the stink of corpses covering the hill. With the Germans finally on Hill 304, 
and on Côte Loire, with Mort Homme between them, it was only a matter of time. But it was a long time. Now in the heat and stink and dust and flies, the Germans pushed up Le Mort Homme time and again. The French contested every inch, even as they felt the squeeze on the hill. But by the end of May, the German 5th Army had wrenched Le Mort Homme from the French 2nd Army, widening the breach in Pétain's line of resistance even more. The Germans took the village of Comières. I mean, at, at this point, do we even need to tell you that by village, I mean, you know, chunks of rock and dust and, you know, maybe a few pieces of paper or bedsheets. Uh, Germans took Comières and tried to push on and threatened the Bois-Boru Ridge. French couldn't take back Comières, but they did stop the Germans trying to advance past the hills. When Le Morton finally fell to his exhausted and dehydrated troops, Crown Prince expressed satisfaction. But his front line was where it should have been nearly three months before. Front line on the left bank had shifted three kilometers in the Germans' favor. And they noticed their casualties were close to those of the French. It might even be higher. German General von Galwitz, the new commander of German troops on the left bank, noted sarcastically, at this rate, we'll be in Verdun by 1920. German losses had been appalling over the last two months at Verdun. Over 92,000 men killed, wounded, and missing. For the French, the losses for April and May went well over the 100,000 mark. But General Pétain and his second army had been dealt a serious hit with the loss of the two hills on the left bank. The Germans now finally dominated the western half of the battlefield, and they had eyes all over the eastern half as well. Crown Prince and his fifth army were now secure to make another push on the right bank to take Fort Vaux and break through to Verdun itself. So that's it for this week. Next time, it's back to the right bank as some new characters appear on the stage and the Crown Prince makes new moves there. Thank you again for the comments and reviews. These can be posted on battleoverdonepodcast.com and on iTunes, as well as through the Facebook page, and I'm sure on Stitcher too. Feel free to ask any questions you might have as well. I will do my best to answer them for you. See you again soon. Take care. You've always had what it takes to make it happen, and we know the right tools can make it easier. At Strayer University, we're always thinking about new ways to set you up for success. That's why we give you a brand new laptop when you enroll in a bachelor's program. 
so you can start off on the right foot and keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Eligibility rules, restrictions, and exclusions apply. Connect with us for details. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Chef.